so good to see you. If, it's, uh, if you're visiting with us today, if it's your first time, I am actually going to have to step forward a wee bit because it just is distracting me. Um, um, if it's your first time with us today, you're so welcome, so glad you're here. Uh, if you're family, it's just great to see you. Um, just let's do this for the crack. Um, I want to see who's traveled furthest to church this morning. <laughs> All right. So uh, who's traveled uh, less than one mile to come to church today? <laughs> And who of those people were on time? <laughs> oh, okay, who's traveled more than five miles to church today? Oh, wow, look at that. All right, who's traveled more than uh, 15 miles to come to church? <laughs> who's, who's traveled more than uh, 20 miles to come to church? Wow, okay. So let's start naming places then, okay. Um, right, somebody, shout out, where did you travel from? Coleraine, okay, so Coleraine, how far is that? How many? 30? 30 miles? Is it? 26, 26 miles, is it? All right, 20, but, but we'll round it up to about 28, okay, I'll give you 28, 28 miles. Uh, anyone further than that, name it, please. 36, Ballybogie, Ballybogie. Ballybogie, what a great name of a place, isn't it, Ballybogie? Anywhere else, anywhere further than 36 miles, anyone travel? Belfast, who traveled from Belfast? You travel from Belfast? Wow, well done, good on you. Anyone else travel from Belfast? How far is Belfast, an hour and a half, but what's that? And 75 miles, what, anyone further than that? Anyone travel internationally? <laughs> from Donegal, yes, yes. <laughs> we're, still, uh, we're still waiting after... Like, this is actually true. We said this before. This is actually true. There is a chance that after Brexit, that the UK will be in a different time zone to the rest of Europe, which includes Donegal, right? So we will be an hour, I don't know, ahead or behind. I don't know what it is, but it's, uh, it's just, it's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. All right, guys, we're going to go straight into the deep end here. I've got a message that I want to bring, but before that, um, I'm going to ask you all to stand up, if that's okay. Um, just this morning, um, during pre-service prayer and then during worship, I just felt the Lord wanted to do a few things, okay? So let's close our eyes for a moment. We're just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. It's His church, after all, right? This belongs to Jesus. It's nothing to do with us. It's His. So Lord, we just invite you now, come Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are amongst us, that you are here as we worshiped you, as we praised you, that you are establishing your throne in this place that you're increasing our awareness of your presence as we praise you. And you, maybe you, you're new to this, maybe you've come to church, and as we were worshiping, you just, you just sensed something. You just felt something different. Like when we talk to people on the street, when we pray with them and they sense what we know to be God's presence, they sense it as feeling weird. It's like there's something different. Maybe you're feeling that today. That's God's presence. And Father, we pray right now, you increase your awareness of your presence. You increase your awareness of your glory. Increase your awareness of your holiness, God. Of your holiness, God. Of your power. Of your presence. Of your love. Come, Lord God. Come, Lord God. Come, Lord God. Um, felt this morning that uh, we were praying that somebody would be here and they would be suffering really bad pains in their left shoulder. Is that anyone here? Has anyone got really bad pains in your left shoulder? Been struggling with it for a while. It's okay. I think there's who? Okay, over here. 
one over here. I think there's, I think there's, um, I think there's two more people in the room. Okay, we've got one here. Julie. Okay. Anyone else? One more. Brian. Okay. So guys, could you gather around? Uh, those guys, if you're around them, just gather around them. We're going to pray in a moment for them. Okay. Just make sure everyone's got a couple of people with them. We're going to pray with them. Um, second thing. Um, Somebody's really uh, got like this uh, sharp, like searing pain in their side. Like I don't know exactly what it is, but it's like a, it's almost like a stabbing pain in your side. Um, I don't know if it's kidneys or not, but it's it's like right here, and it literally feels like it's a spear, like it's a hot thing right in your side. Is that anyone's anyone dealing with that? Is that something somebody has? Yeah, Esther. Anyone else? Anyone else got that? Okay, you guys, if you're around Esther, can you get around to her and we're going to pray for her? Um, okay. And then also the right leg, just right above the ankle, like there's this real pain in your leg and your ankle, probably like on the, on the inside a little bit, but again, it feels like a real heat, like a searing heat in the right leg. Is that somebody? Who's that? And I know this person is in the room. I know that, like, I, I don't know that you've got that issue, you too, Esther. I think there, I actually think there's going to be more. I think there's another person too. That that is somebody over here? Yeah, okay. So if somebody can gather around you and pray, is that okay? So we're going to pray now for this, okay, guys? So let's join together. We're the church, we're the hands, we're the feet, uh, we're being placed on earth to be Jesus' voice. So Lord, we thank you that you are here, that you're moving amongst us. And Lord, that you love these people, God. You have identified them today because you love them. And you want them to know your love, to know your blessing. And we pray right now, even before we pray for healing, God, that your presence would flow over them, that they would become so aware of the love that you have for them, Father. Just let your love flow over them now, Jesus. Let your love fill them, God. Let your love fill them like the presence of your Holy Spirit just fill uh, to overflowing in their lives right now, Father. Come, Holy Spirit. And right now, we just speak to those conditions right now. And now, if you're there with them, just begin to speak to those conditions. Say, be healed in the name of Jesus. Pain go, restriction go, be healed. Return to the way your master designed you to work. Return to the blueprint of heaven right now in the name of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Return back to the way you were made to be. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Take another minute and just keep praying with them for a minute. In Jesus' name. As you're praying uh, with them, just this other one as well, it felt, um, is there somebody in here who's got your birthdays, uh, I think it's your birthday or anniversary or something, is the 2nd of November. Is that somebody in here? The 2nd of November. Is that anyone? No? Just for a moment. If it is you, don't come to me afterwards, please. <laughs> I will not give it to you then. The 2nd of November, I'll leave it. If it's not there, I'll leave it. That's fine. Okay, you guys that were being prayed with, um, I want you, uh, has anyone noticed any change whatsoever after we're being prayed with? Give me a little wave. Yeah? Been a bit of change? What was the, was it the pain in the leg? gone okay you let go of it okay amazing amazing anybody else any change anything 
Esther? Loosen the bit, okay. Well, Lord, we thank you so much for what you're doing in the room. Lord, we thank you for what you've started here. Thank you, God, that we're seeing breakthrough. We're seeing things happen, things shifting. Lord, I pray that um, you've, you bring to completion what you've started. Lord, that you bring full healing and full restoration and all these things, God. We thank you that you're a good God. And I just, anyone in the room, just as you're standing there, and you need a breakthrough from the Lord. Like, you actually just need God. You're in a situation where you just need him to come in. You need him to bring answers. You need him to bring some revelation. There's just, you're just in this spot. Just now, just close your eyes and open yourself up to him. Father, we just release and pray your breakthrough over that life right now in Jesus' name. Thank you that you're a God, that we sing this amazing song about Abba Father, that you're a God who is with us, you're a God who contends for us. We thank you, Jesus, that you are at the right hand of the Father right now interceding for us, that you're our advocate, you're beside us, you're with us. So we thank you so much, God, that you're with us. So Father, right now, we just declare and release breakthrough in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Father, uh, we ask that you would open up the treasury of heaven and provide the resource for what needs to be resourced. We pray you bring rest restoration for what needs to be restored, but we also pray, God, that you break off what needs to be broken off, that you cut off what needs to be cut off in our lives, the things that are either distracting us or holding us back, the things that are drawing us away from you. Lord, remove those things. Come have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, guys. Grab a seat. Grab a seat. Good on you. All right, turn to the person beside you and see how they're doing again. Give them a high five, see if they're all right. All right, see if they're okay. All right, good stuff. Good stuff. Now, guys, uh, last week we were... Um, we started this new series, uh, and we called it Overcoming Your Shadow Mission. There's a, a book written by a guy called John Ortberg. He's a brilliant author, uh, a great guy. He has written, written that book, Overcoming Your Shadow Mission. Uh, I remember hearing teaching on this a few years ago and then subsequently reading the book and just being completely blown away by, by it, and we've been journeying through that. And last week... Uh, we talked about, uh, we were looking at the book of Esther, and we looked at both Xerxes and we looked at Vashti, right? And, uh, and the main characters in this book of Esther, they're all presented with choices. They all have a choice to make, a choice either to follow uh, the God mission in their lives or to follow something that's a little bit darker, something that isn't worthy of their lives, something that isn't worthy to be followed, and we, we call that the shadow mission. And the truth of it is, each one of us has a plan and a purpose for our lives. Each one of us is precious to God. Every life is set apart for God. God has something in store for each one of us um, and something that heaven has laid out for us. And we like to call this, or we put a phrase around this, that we call it God's preferred destiny for our lives, right? That he has a plan, a purpose, that he has a preferred destiny. But we're all presented with choices. And so we have three choices, really, and the, the first one is to follow the mission and the purpose that God has for us. That's the first choice. The second one is to go on autopilot and give our lives to something that's much less worthy, right? Where we just drift along, and without realizing it, we're just giving our lives to something that isn't really worthy of our time, but we get to a place where we're like, wow, look at what we've given our lives to. Or thirdly, 
we can actively pursue something that isn't hope-filled, that isn't life-giving, but something that's a bit darker and a bit more destructive, something that's quite obviously working against God's mission, but it is a shadow mission, right? And we saw Xerxes last week, King Xerxes in, um, in Susa, uh, in Persia, and he had the power and the resource. He was head over 127 provinces. He had the power and the resource to change and transform the world. But instead of doing that, he would make decisions based on how good it would make him look. He made decisions based on massaging his ego, right? And making people give him praise for how cool he was. But then when his queen, Vashti, she stood up to him and said no to someone's ridiculous demands, instead of him turning to her and saying, oh, Vashti, I'm sorry, you're right. He actually doesn't want to hear the truth because it's challenging his image, his persona that he's building. He doesn't want to hear that, so he gets super cross, really angry, and banishes his wife from his presence. And last week, we finished up by saying this, our true mission in life is to know God, but our shadow mission is to replace God, right? Our true mission is to know God, but our shadow mission is to replace God. So if we can pick up the story again in Esther uh, chapter two, we're gonna read through, uh, through a few different parts of Esther. Now, I will say this just as we're doing this. Um, it's really important that we set the context of the story of Esther. So we're gonna spend a good bit of time going through and following through the characters and what God is doing uh, through the story and then bring some applications out of that. But we are gonna journey through sort of the narrative of this, okay? So uh, Esther 2, verse 1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king, uh, let the young woman who pleases the king, be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king. And he followed it. Just pay attention to that word. It appealed to him. It appealed to something inside of him. They spoke something we know that actually touched his shadow mission. And he's like, yes, I like that. And now what we're seeing here is we're seeing um, the king's attendants speaking up, right? These are not the, uh, the advisors to the king. These are not the lawmakers. This is not the court. These are his personal, uh, personal attendants. These are young men who tend his needs, and they obviously just have one thing on their mind. That's all they have on their mind. Um, they weren't really eligible or qualified to give him kingly advice. Like, they didn't have the wisdom to actually give him great advice, but they did know how to speak to his shadow mission. They proposed this plan. Go to all the 127 provinces, get the best-looking young women and put them through an audition process. Put them into harem, and the winner of this competition will be the young woman who pleases you the most, right? I mean, it's pretty crazy, right? It's pretty crazy. And what a ridiculous way to pick a spouse. What a crazy way to pick a wife. But listen, guys, aren't we thankful that we don't live in a time like that? 
It's crazy to think, isn't it? It's crazy to think that there was a time when men would audition multiple women to find the perfect wife. I know it's really hard for us to imagine this, right? It's really hard for us to think that there was a culture that once was so superficial that middle-aged men would display their power and their wealth in order to attract young, beautiful women. I know it's crazy to think that that once was a thing, but, you know, it's good for us that we don't live in that time. Thank goodness as well, we don't live in a time when uh, people win national competitions by just how beautiful they are, right? It's, it's good that that doesn't exist. It's also good, isn't it, that it doesn't exist, that we have TV programs that actually celebrate the promiscuity of people, and they win competitions by that very thing, right? And if, in case you don't get it, I'm being completely sarcastic, <laughs> all right, just in case. I know, I know, I'm sorry. I shouldn't, I really shouldn't be, but yeah. Even though this was 470 BC, there's not much that has changed. There's not much that has changed. And Xerxes here, he's, he's, being, like, he's being an impulsive fool. The writer of this book, you know, which we think, we, we don't know for sure, but we think it actually might be Mordecai, who's another uh, character in this story. But the writer of this book is actually trying to show us how ridiculous this whole thing is. He's trying to paint the picture and go, look at how crazy this is. This king, who's the most powerful king on the planet, is taking relationship advice from his personal attendants, right? The people who check the food to make sure it's not poisoned, you know? The people who give him grapes that fan him down. He is taking advice that will affect the nations. And he's showing us that he is an impulsive, insecure king who just makes terrible decisions. And because Xerxes had actually surrounded himself with flatterers. He surrounded himself with people that don't really care about him, but they actually care about themselves. You, you, being no shadow of a doubt, they were not going to tell the king the truth. They were never going to say to him the real deal. They were never going to speak truth to him. They were going to only say things to him that appealed to him and benefited them. That's how the shadow mission works. They're actively feeding his while they're trying to gain some level of influence and promotion and all those things in their lives. He should be surrounding himself with advisors, people who will give advice that brings about life, that brings about hope, justice, good, all those things, but he's not. He's got people in his life who are giving him advice that bring about oppression because that's what this is. They're bringing about oppression. Okay, so um, as I was uh, doing this, I just feel like I need to share this. For people who are involved in any level of management, whether it's middle management, senior management, and in any organization, whatever that looks like, um, the higher up you go in any organization, the less truth that you're likely to hear about you and about the organization. One of the uh, signs that the shadow mission is starting to take over is when people under a particular leadership, they're more concerned about your perception of reality than the reality itself. When people speak into your perception of reality than the reality itself. In other words, what starts to happen is you begin to believe your own hype. You begin to believe your own hype. If you're leading something like that, 
and you don't know what your shadow mission is, or maybe you're just married, okay? Ask your spouse. They will tell you what is going on. They will tell you the truth if you ask them. Or if you're a leader in an organization, ask the people around you for the truth. What is the shadow mission? What is happening here? And we're going to explore that again next time, not this particular sermon, but the next time we come back to this and identifying our own shadow missions. This moment is where the story of Esther gets really interesting. It's where we actually see God intersecting the narrative now. You know, what I really love is um, when humanity, we always do our best to screw everything up. You know, it's like God gives us a little bit of responsibility and then we just go and we just mess the whole thing up. It just happens over and over and over again. He gives us a little, trust us. He gives us a bit of responsibility and we do our very best to wreck stuff, okay? I mean, just think about your own life. I'm sure my life, I look at it. If, if I try and make decisions without God, usually it ends up me turning around saying, God, please help, right? Uh, I end up, but, but what's amazing is that God is always doing something in the background. God is always coming along with us and at some point in our stories, he intersects it and he does something and he changes it and he transforms and he takes her mess and he turns it into something good, right? Now there's consequences to our decisions. There's pain and there's disappointment and all those things that we journey with. But if we come to God and we take our stuff and we lay it before him and say, God, I need you, then he can do something good with it. Something good can be birthed out of it. But actually, it's a really good idea to ask him for guidance at the start rather than help at the end. Like when you're making decisions, big decisions in your life, it's really good to ask God at the start of that decision, God, what do you want? And then listen, right? Rather than coming at the end with the classic prayer, help, <laughs> which is a great prayer to pray when you need it, but help. It's good to ask him, God, well, what do you want me to do? What is your guidance? What is your counsel in this God? Because it's in this point in the story that God begins to intersect, that God begins to come in, and we're introduced to two Jews in this story, uh, in Susa, Mordecai and his cousin Esther. So Esther 2 verse 7. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah. Hadassah is a great name, isn't it? Do we anyone in here called Hadassah? No. We think Hadassah, Hadassah Delassa. That'd be good, wouldn't it? But I just. <laughs> but anyway, uh, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as, her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Now, that's really important. You'd wonder, well, why does the Bible put in that um, she has a lovely figure and she was beautiful? Well, because he's showing us that she's going to begin to step into the story and the search from Xerxes, right? We're starting to see the plan unfold here. We're starting to see where God is beginning to interject and begin to change and transform stuff. And the very attributes the king is looking for is going to be found in this young Jewish orphan girl. And guess what happens? She gets chosen for the contest. She gets chosen for the audition, right? And now when you think about it, and we think about the story of Esther, maybe you're familiar with this. Well, we think, oh, isn't it amazing that Esther got to where she was and she does become queen, right? And it becomes amazing. And we think about Queen Esther. But in all reality, this was not probably the best situation for her life. 
when we think of Esther's life, she was a young girl who was in captivity. She was a young girl who lost her mother and her father. She's a young girl who now has been plucked out of any uh, familiarity that she had and brought to the king to be in his harem. That is not, that's not very uh, glamorous, is it? That is not very cool. That's quite messy. That's just not cool. It's not nice. In all reality for Esther, even though she may become queen, it was probably more dangerous for her to be queen than it was for her actually to be unknown in the first place. And then we have Mordecai comes along. Mordecai is a godly and he's a wise man. And although it's not explicit in the text, it's pretty implicit that um, this man hears from God. He hears from God. Um, he's had divine insight in his life. He's somewhat prophetic because even at one moment, he tells Esther, don't tell Xerxes uh, about your nationality. Don't tell him that you're a Jew and don't tell him about your family. Like there's no context for her not to say that at the time. But uh, Mordecai has this insight to say, don't tell Xerxes that because it's really important for later in the story. Esther 2.17. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. The king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the province, provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Another banquet. Last, last week we said Esther really is a story of banquets. Like it's, it just revolves around parties or revolves around these, these banquets. And in this party, he's celebrating Esther has won the contest. And he even proclaims a bank holiday, right? We just love that. He proclaims it to be a bank holiday and celebrates and gifts go out everywhere, has this party. I want you to imagine that, like the royal wedding. It's fantastic. And now we get a day off work and everybody's so excited about this. The king is being lavish. He's showing off his wealth, his resource, all that stuff. And everybody's benefiting from it. But the scary thing about this is, is all this is doing is feeding his insecurities. All this is doing is about getting praise from people for this guy who just has really low self-esteem. This guy who's got lots of stuff going on. And we see that this doesn't last very long. A couple of verses later, he asks for the second round of virgins to be brought to him. For the next thing to happen. Even though he found his wife, he's like, no, let's get more people in. He's kind of drifting more and more into oblivion. He's drifting more and more just into emptiness in his life. He's struggling. Now, when this is happening, there are some guards at his palace. And these two guards, they're, they're fed up with how Xerxes is leading the country and everything that he's doing. They're fed up with it all. They get really angry, and they start to plot to try and kill him. And Mordecai finds out about this. And Mordecai, actually being a righteous man, he could have stepped, stepped aside and let it happen. But actually being a righteous man and understands how authority works within the kingdom and the value that God puts on authority, even under the leaders that oppress us, right? He understands that. So he actually, um, he foils the plan to assassinate Xerxes. And his name then gets written into the history books, into the king's annals as a heroic act that saved the king. 
And it's at this point now that we get introduced to the fourth main character in the book of Esther. His name is Haman. Haman. Um, He is Xerxes' chief of staff. So while Xerxes is an immature, insecure leader, Haman is a manipulative, selfish narcissist. (laughs) He's a much stronger leader than Xerxes is. But he has an incredible shadow mission that he's completely buying into his life. He, he really wants, when you read it and you read between it, he really wants to be the king. He really be, wants to be the one who's set on high. And in fact, when you look at it, you actually see parallels through uh, Haman and Lucifer, right? When you look at it, you actually see these things happening. But Haman wants to be the one that is held high. He wants the people to bow down. And in fact, he makes the people bow down to him, to worship him as some like godlike figure, right? But there's one person who will not bow down to Haman. One person who won't give in to him. And that person is Mordecai, the Jew who saved the king's life. But Haman, he comes up with this plot. He's like, we need to sort these Jews out. We need to sort not just Mordecai, but I'm going to make the entire tribe, their entire people suffer for his lack of uh, loyalty and worship of me. And he goes to Xerxes and he said, there is a tribe of people in your kingdom. There's a tribe of people here. They are trouble. We need to get rid of these people. We need to get rid of them. And Xerxes in that moment, Xerxes doesn't even care. He's like, oh, do whatever you want, Haman. I don't care. Number one, he doesn't realize that his wife is one of those people. And secondly, that the guy who saved his life is one of those people. He doesn't realize any of this. He actually takes off his signet ring, his ring of authority, and gives it to Haman. He says, Haman, you you do the decree. You do the edict. You sort it all out. You do it. I don't care. I don't care. And so Haman does. He puts the decree out that on the 13th day, Of the 12th month, every Jew is going to be destroyed. Imagine that. Like, don't just do it. They put out a decree that on this date, this is going to happen. On the 13th day of the 12th month, every Jew is going to be destroyed. And then it speaks of one other banquet. This time it's just Xerxes and Haman. Esther 3 and verse 15. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. The city of Susa was bewildered. Well, Xerxes does as he does. He sits down to drink and fill himself with whatever he needs. And Haman sits down with him. The city is reeling from the news that so many of them are going to be destroyed. Like, how did we get to this place? It wasn't so long ago that Xerxes was throwing all these banquets and we were living lavish lives. We were uh, having all this uh, liberality of the king being spread over us. He was giving us gifts. He was letting us drink as much as we wanted. Like all this was happening. It was all great. It was all amazing. And then suddenly, suddenly it disappears. And what we're left with is death, desolation, fear, anxiety, all those things. That's what we're left with. And that's what happens when we follow our shadow mission. It seems good at the start, 
We feed our needs, we feed our wants, we feed our rights, we go after that stuff. And it feels good at the beginning and we, and we long for it and we keep going after it, but there comes a point when it all disappears and we're just left with despair. We're just left with this emptiness and going, how did we get here? How did we actually get here? Um, I sense today that there actually are people in the room and you feel like you're in that place. You're asking the question, how did I get here? Not particularly church this morning, but how did you get here in your life? This place of despair. And it's just this, um, you know, the Northern Irish expression, you know, you can't see the wood for trees, that one. That's what it feels like. You just have no clarity on your future. You've no clarity about what's happening. Just fear, just anxiety, and this impending sense of despair. One of the things that the Lord has been really speaking very clearly to us as about as a church over the last year, and we felt it every time we've prayed together, even as a leadership team, we've been planning or dreaming things, we feel like God is saying that this is to be a city of joy. Like joy is something that the Lord is going to restore. He's going to reveal. And I believe he's going to do it here and it's going to spill out. We're going to see joy spread through the city. We're going to see that. And the city will be known as a city of joy, right? We know that God's going to do that. But I believe that he needs and he wants to do that amongst us first. And for many of you here, God is going to begin to do that in your life. He wants to restore joy to you. He wants to bring transformation in the area of emotional health. That's not something that is untouchable for God. That's something God is intently interested in. He wants to bring wholeness to people, and that includes emotional health. And we're going to begin to push into that and pursue that more over the next few months. We're going to uh, push in, and we really believe that God is um, supernaturally as well. Not, we're going to use the tools and the gifts and the people that God has given to us, but we're also going to see him step in supernaturally, doing the things that only he can do, bringing transformation through that stuff. He's going to do it. We know he's going to do it. And we just want to be available for him when he does do that. So that's something that God's doing. And I believe today, if you're there today, God wants to bring breakthrough. You need to know you're not on your own in this. You're not on your own. He wants to restore joy to you. It's not something you're going to have to live with for the rest of your life. You may think it is. You may be told it is. But God wants to bring change. He wants to release his joy into your life. Back to Esther, Esther 4, verse 1. You guys are doing great. We're getting there. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. So Mordecai, of course, he hears the edict, he hears the decree being sent out. He goes out to the middle, tears his clothes, put on sackcloth, and then he starts throwing ashes over himself. He is, he is like mourning for what actually has been decreed. He is in, uh, he's just devastated and the rest of the Jews in all of the kingdom they followed suit as well anyone and anywhere that heard this was happening they begin to mourn and they begin to groan and cry out and wail Esther hears about Mordecai's behavior she hears about what he's doing and she's distressed by it and she goes sends her attendants out and go go find out what's wrong with Mordecai and go fix it fix it because you know he's creating the scene I don't know what's going on with him something crazy is happening it's obvious that Esther had not heard about the decree think about that for a minute the queen this thing that is like sweeping through the nation the queen the one that's sitting at the top she has not heard about this it shows you it gives you an insight into her life 
She's living in isolation. She doesn't know why he's doing this. And then uh, Mordecai, he sends word back about what Haman has planned. And he says to her, you need to go to the king. You need to plead with him for mercy and beg for the lives of your people, right? You need to go to the king, plead with, the li- plead with him for the lives of the people, beg him for mercy. But Esther's reply in this was really interesting. Now we see Esther is faced with the choice. She now has the choice. Now we see her mission versus her shadow mission begin to rise up. Because her reply to Mordecai in this, she says, I can't go to him. I cannot go to him. Because if you go to him without being summoned, then you'll be killed. Like if I go to him without him asking me to come, then my head is on the platter. And anyway, he hasn't called me to him in 30 days. She hasn't seen her husband in 30 days. And then Mordecai, he sends these infamous words to Esther, these deeply challenging, convicting words right from the heart of the Father, right from the heart of the Father in heaven. Esther 4.13. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther, this is what this whole journey has been about. This is what it's been all about. God has positioned you for this time, for this moment, to bring about mercy for the Jews, to bring them out of the jaws of extinction. This is your time, Esther. This is your assignment. This is your calling. I know you're worried about, I might die, am I this? But actually, Esther, the choice is this. You stand and you take the stand and you follow the assignment that God has put on your life or you sit and you do nothing and we all get destroyed. And the Jews will rise up again from another place, but you won't have stepped into your assignment from God. Now is your time. Now is your time. And what I want to ask you today, I want to challenge you with is, Who actually plays Mordecai in your life? Who's your Mordecai? Do you have people in your life who surround you and fuel your shadow mission? Or do you have people who call God's assignment and God's mission out of you? Do we have people who uh, look for what's in your hands? Or do you have people who treasure what's in your heart? Paul does this. He models this to us when he writes probably what's considered to be his last written letter to Timothy. Um, In 2 Timothy, he says, 2 Timothy 1.6, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And what Paul's actually saying in this moment, he's saying he's calling Timothy out to give account for the ability that's in him, Right? It's like, Timothy, don't shrink back. You need to fan and to flame the gift that is in you, the gift of God that is in you. You need to step up into that. Don't shrink back. Step forward into your calling. Step forward into what it is that God is doing in you. Accountability is very simple to understand. It's giving an account for your ability, 
right? Accountability. But when we think of accountability, we think about just making sure we don't do it wrong, don't we? When we think accountability, just make sure we don't mess up. It's a very base level of accountability. It's good, but if you stay there, it's unhealthy. Accountability is making sure we give an account for our ability. True accountability is calling the gifting and the gold out of others. We talked about this uh, a few months ago, maybe more than that a few months ago, but when we have people in our lives that flatter us, flattery is just another form of manipulation. All flattery does is I'm flattering you because I want you to do something for me. Whereas honor recognizes what's in people and calls it out of them. It sees people as the Father sees them, and it calls that gold out of them. It's what Jesus did with his disciples. He does it with Peter, is probably the best example. Peter, who's known as Simon, which means broken reed, he calls him Peter, which means rock. And in the, in the story of the Gospels, Peter doesn't look much like a rock, except when he's sinking in the ocean, when he's, or the lake, when he's walking over to Jesus. But apart from that, he's always putting his foot in his mouth. But Jesus always calls him according to who he is in God what God has placed in him, the call that God has on his life. And that's what we are called to do. Who loves you enough to challenge you in the times that you're falling back? Do you have a Mordecai in your life? If you do, then I want to encourage you, write their names down and thank them this week. Thank them this week for what they've done for you. If you don't have one, you got to pray and ask God, would you send me a Mordecai? and pay attention to the people he brings your way. But even more than that, and this is what I want to challenge you with this morning, be a Mordecai. Be a Mordecai. If you want to have people in your life that do that, then you be the person in somebody else's life that does that. You call the goal and the mission of God out. A Mordecai is someone who is more devoted to the call in your life than impressed by your giftedness. Somebody who's more devoted to the call of God on your life than impressed by your giftedness. So what is the assignment that God has called you to today? But like Esther, you may find yourself in a position of influence. You may not. You just find yourself wherever you are. But what is the assignment that God has given to you there? Not the job description that you have, not the, you know, your, your list of things that you must do for your work or the things you've got to do at school or wherever you find yourself. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what's God's assignment that he has put on you for where you are. And it's usually when you look at the people that are around you, that's usually your assignment. Because our mission is always tied into people, right? It's always tied into the people we find ourselves around. If you don't step into that assignment, what we actually see here is that somebody else might. But perhaps you're not there wherever you are by your own effort, by your own design, but perhaps you're there for such a time as this. Perhaps you're there for such a time as this. It wasn't Esther's fault that she ended up where she ended up. It wasn't her design where she ended up where she ended up. It wasn't her fault, but it was her time. Where you are today, it may be your fault, it might not be your fault, but I'm telling you this, it is your time. It is your time. I'm going to close. Esther, she knew Mordecai was right. It was her time to step up, um, but she doesn't try and do this without God. Even though she was aware, this is why I'm here, this is where I've been positioned, she doesn't try and do it 
without God. She fasts for three days and she asks for all of the Jews to also fast for three days. And she recognizes it's only God that can do this. It's only him. Hester, who was shrinking back before uh, Mordecai challenged her, she now writes these words, really powerful words, five words, Esther 4.16 at the end, she says, if I perish, I perish. Wow. <laughs> if I perish, I perish. Her words now are as bold and courageous, right, as Mordecai's were challenging, right? She is bold. What an incredible woman of God. Her words reflect the words of the three boys a couple of generations before her. Remember those lads, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Said, you know, they're going to be thrown in the furnace. And said, our God is mighty to save us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down and worship you. He's still God. If we die, we die. <laughs> wow. And here's Esther standing up and saying the same thing. She got to the place where her calling and her assignment were greater than self-preservation. You know, I think, well, I don't think, I know and I'm praying that we actually see a generation of people who care less about their own possession, about their own preservation, and they care more about seeing the kingdom of God coming in love and power. But the reality is people like that will only ever rise up when they have an encounter with the living God. We can have our faith, we can have our tradition, we can have our religion, whatever you want. But unless we have an encounter with the living God, we will never get to the place of Esther where we say, if I perish, I perish. It seems far away. It doesn't look likely in our culture, but the reality is we need an encounter with the living God. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever had one of those oh no moments, right? The oh no moment. It's like, oh no, he is real. <laughs> like when we're praying with people, we see them on the street and they, they have this encounter with Jesus as wherever they're sitting and they go, oh no, he is real. He is holy. He is glorious. Oh no. <laughs> oh no, Lord, I'm so sorry. Forgive me, God. You know, there's this moment of conviction and recognition that God really is God. And a real encounter with Jesus, and this is where we're gonna close really, a real encounter with Jesus takes you from what Jesus can do for me to what can Jesus do through me to Jesus do it regardless of what happens to me. We're all somewhere on the scale. What can Jesus do for me? What can Jesus do through me to Jesus do it regardless of what happens to me? I'm not going to ask you to put up your hands about where you are on that one. But I want you to reflect on that. It's really important. Because Jesus is our model in this. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet he was without sin. And we actually see, and we'll explore this again, but Jesus, he had a shadow mission on his life. And the shadow mission was this, to be a leader without suffering, to be the Messiah without the cross. And time and again, he rejected that and stepped into the assignment of God. It was F.F. F. Bruce, he wrote this. He's a great New Testament scholar. He said, time and again, the temptation came to him from many directions to choose some less costly way of fulfilling that calling than the way of suffering and death. 
but he resisted it to the end and set his face steadfastly to accomplish the purpose for which he had come into the world. He set his face steadfastly for the purpose. Let's stand together, if that's okay. So you guys have done really well. I just want to read some last verses uh, to you, and then we'll pray together. Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Do you know what the joy was that caused Jesus to endure the cross? It was you. It was you. You're the reason he went to the cross. You're his joy. You're the reason he didn't give in to the shadow mission. You're the reason that he actually endured what he endured. You are his joy. He went it for your sake so that you could know him. You could know his love. You could know his hope. You could know his forgiveness. You could know his holiness. You could know his glory. You could know all these things of him. And in response to that, the writer of the Hebrews, he says to us, in response to what Jesus has done, then what we need to do is throw off everything else that's holding us back. Throw off everything that's holding us back. It might seem good. It might seem virtuous. It might be sinful. Whatever it is, if it's holding you back from God, you need to throw it off. So that you can step into the race. You can step into his preferred destiny for your life. That you begin to run that race because this is your time. This is your time. It's not tomorrow. It's not two weeks away. It's now. Don't try and live in tomorrow. Live in today. Live in today. It's time to take hold of what he has for you today. Let's close our eyes. We're going to pray. For some of you men in this room today, um, you actually need to make that very first step and give your life to Jesus. You need that encounter with him that changes everything for you. Right? And as I've been speaking and you've been just knowing inside, even when we've talked about the different missions and Xerxes and him and all these things and the emptiness and the despair, it's just been like, oh, I felt like just speaking right into your soul, right? There's just this, oh, that's me. I need this hope. I need this life. And Jesus wants to meet with you today. For those of you that this is the first moment, he wants to meet with you today. And he wants to call you son. He wants to call you daughter. He wants to welcome you into the family of God. And he wants to begin to transform and change um, the direction of your life. He wants to write a new story over your life. He wants to do that for you. And so um, if that's you, uh, not right now, but I'm going to invite you to come up afterwards and we'll have a few guys available to pray um, afterwards as well. So you come on up and, and tell those guys that you want to do that. And the second thing today 
is that if you find yourself in that place of despair, that place of like, I need to throw off everything that hinders. I need to take that stuff off and I need to lay it down to Jesus. I need to live in the race that's marked out for me. Well, Lord, I just pray right now that you help us. Give us the courage and the boldness to step into our time. Let us not think about, let us not worry about the perception of others. Let us not even be uh, thinking about our history and failures of the past or attempts to step out in faith in the past that didn't work out or, or, or questions of our faith, any of those things. We cast all that stuff aside and we focus on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus. You and you alone, Jesus. We look at you, nothing else. No pastor, no leader, no worship team, no nothing, no anybody. We just focus on you, Jesus, you and you alone, Lord. And we recognize, just like Esther did, that it's only through the grace of God that we get to do this. It's only through Jesus. It's only through his power. It's only through his words. And like Peter, when he gets out of the boat, he actually says, Jesus, call me to you. And the Father, I pray you call us to you. Begin to speak and begin to lead us into your preferred destiny for our lives. That in response to the cross, we'll be a people who move from thinking, what can you do for me, Jesus? We move from a people of going, what can Jesus do through me? To become a people who say, Jesus, do it regardless of what happens to me. Because we are sold out for you, God. As a church, we come before you today, Father, and we surrender this church to you. And we say, God, this is your church. You do what you want to do with it. You're the head. You're the king. You're the boss. You do what you want to do today, Jesus. In every heart. In Jesus' name. Amen.